Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. All right, so contramundum, living for God's glory in a hostile culture. And we're going to today, and I'm sorry about that, today we're going to be talking about uh, confronting the sexual revolution and a rebellious microphone uh, and all of the implications of that. The first question we ask when confronting any issue is this. What does the Scripture say? So, we affirm that the Scripture alone is our final authority. Uh, The Bible is not an isolated collection of texts. It is not a communal library for the church, but as a master narrative from beginning to end, it situates us in a storyline. And that storyline is how we understand ourselves, the times, the gospel, the church, and the demands of Christian faithfulness and responsibility. So, starting from the very beginning, we have a narrative, and God himself tells us about man. So, starting in Genesis, what does God tell us about man? What does God tell us about man specifically in the creation narrative? This is a time for you to volunteer, yes. Uh, Made on day six. Made on day six. What else? He He pronounced man very good. Created in God's image. His likeness, those communicable attributes. Being, wisdom, intelligence, love. So all those things are communicated, not the eternal, you know, not the unchangeable, because man is not eternal or unchangeable, but creating God's image. Male and female, he created them, right? And they were given responsibility as a couple to replenish the earth, exercise dominion, multiply. They were not created to be alone. God identifies this in Genesis 2.18. As a matter of fact, it's rather powerful how God does this. Remember, he tells Adam to name all of the animals, and he parades the animals before Adam. And what did Adam find as a result of this review, as a result of the naming? There was nothing suitable for him. And so it was a conclusive fact. There was not a fit for Adam. And it, you know, the normative reaction and relationship that we go through is that of eventually being married. Now, there are those who are single, and Paul talks about that, and that's a wonderful gift for those who are created and given that gift. And we're not denigrating that at all. Woman was created out of man. The woman was presented to man as a compliment. He names her. She was made for him, and he was made for her, Genesis 2.23. And this is identified as marriage in the next verse, Genesis 2.24. They were righteous naked, and unashamed. Well, we look at the fall. We always look at things regarding creation, fall, redemption, and the new creation. So the fall impacts upon the relationship of man and woman. Genesis three twelve through 19, you already know that. We've talked about that a lot. There's a great quote here from Dr. Moeller. If anything, marriage becomes more important, not less important, after the fall. As the traditional Christian wedding language of the Book of Common Prayer expresses it, one of the purposes of marriage is to serve as a remedy for sin. After the fall, marriage and rightly ordered family become not only a testimony to the goodness of God, but a massive defense against the effects of sin in the world. Now, the fall continues, and the scripture is very plain about 
the implications of the fall. And so in Genesis, very soon you have polygamy, Genesis 4. You soon have homosexuality, Genesis 19. Bestiality, Exodus 22. Cross-dressing, Deuteronomy 22. And rape. So you have all of these aberrancies, all of these sins making themselves manifest in the early part of God's word, the Pentateuch. So you have creation, you have fall, and redemption. Now in redemption, you have the fact that we are not only redeemed by the blood of Christ to a, a love and a commitment to him, but in that redemption, we see that marriage and relationship between men and women are to be a picture of the redemption we have in Christ. That he is coming as a bridegroom for his bride. It's a, we are also called in redemption to a deeper faithfulness. While in the old economy, many saw that it was going to be simply an outward obedience. Do not commit adultery. Don't steal something. Jesus comes along and what does he say? Hey, if you look after someone with lust, you are guilty of adultery. If you despise someone in your heart, you are committing murder. So the weight of the law is not destroyed in redemption, but we are subject to having our masks taken off and our hearts are exposed. So, then we look toward the new creation. And in new creation, we're not merely washed in redemption, but we are waiting for what? What feast are we waiting for? The marriage supper of the Lamb, right? And the entire concept is that while gender will remain in the new creation and in our glorified bodies, sexual activity will not. Sex is not nullified in the resurrection, but rather fulfilled. The eschatological marriage supper of the Lamb will finally arrive to which marriage and sexuality point. There is no longer any need to fill the earth with image bearers as there was in Genesis 1. Instead, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as waters cover the sea. So, that's where we started. So we have to ask the question, what happened? What happened? Well, you know, we see a revolution. We see a revolution. Its roots are not recent. We can go back to the garden and see that the corruption of relationships is there, right? In Genesis 3, between man and woman, it's part of the fall. Right? But our commitment to the authority of Scripture and truth runs into direct conflict with the central trust, thrust of this revolution. This rebellion against God. We're not facing an isolated set of issues that causes us to be merely perplexed and at times at odds with the larger culture. We are facing a complete redefinition of sex, gender, marriage, and transformation of the family. The way humans relate to each other in the most intimate context of life. This revolution comprehensively redefines life, love, liberty, and the meaning of right and wrong. This revolution, like all revolutions, takes very few prisoners. In other words, it demands total acceptance of the revolutionary claims and the affirmation of these aims. 
So why is this challenge on human sexuality to Christianity different than other challenges? Why is this so different? Why is this revolutionary movement of thought different than what we've seen in the past in our culture in the USA today? Yes, Kathy. Right, there are some things that will remain. The image of God still retains. Even in fallen man, that image is still there. But there's something different about what's happening and the way people are thinking and how the gospel message, the creation narrative, the biblical concept of man, women, relationships, and intimacy. What's the difference? Excellent. Marilyn says, and rightly so, the alternative view has become the norm. It has become the norm. It is an either-or quality of the new morality. Something that was assumed for centuries to be unspeakably immoral has emerged as an alternative and acceptable form of life and identity that merits legal protection. This demand ousted traditionalist sexual morality from the moral high ground. The Christian church always enjoyed that moral high ground. It had always been understood to be the guardian of what was right and righteous, at least in Western societies. This moral revolution has turned the tables of Christianity and robs the church of the moral high ground it previously claimed. The situation is now fundamentally reversed. For the first time in the history of Western civilization, Christianity appears to be on the underside of morality. And those who hold the biblical teachings concerning human sexuality are now ousted from the moral high ground. Those who want to uphold the old attitude are not just called moralists, but they're called wrong. They're accused of moral deficiency. Does this make sense? Yes, Josh. Yeah. Yeah. Hate group, hate speech, all right? What was previously understood to be immoral is now celebrated as a moral good. As a result, the Christian church's historic teachings on sexuality, homosexuality, transgenderism, shared by the vast majority of citizens of the West until recently, is now understood to be a relic of the past and a reprehensive force that must be eradicated. Now, there are differences in cultures and how um, good people are distinguished from bad people. There are guilt and innocence cultures, and that's pretty much how our uh, society was framed. It was framed specifically as a guilt-innocence culture. If you were violating the law, then you were guilty. Now, you could pay your debt to society and come out and begin to live righteously in front of others. There's a fear-power culture in which your standing before others depends upon your level of fear or power. Fear comes when power has been taken by others or ceded through a failure to conform to society's expectations. What we're moving into now is the third, and your notes talk about this. It's a shame-honor culture. Your standing before others depends upon your level of shame or honor. When you fail to maintain cultural norms, you gain shame and need to restore it with acts of honor. Now, these acts of honor in today's society means you acquiesce to 
alternative lifestyles being acceptable and good. And they are of value. And if you don't, you will be shamed. So we have moved from a guilt-innocence culture where the law is king to a shame-honor culture because the rule of law is being eroded. Does this make sense? This is what's happening. This is the world we're living in. This is the radical reformation. So, as Christians, we can take comfort in laws governing free speech and protecting freedom of religion, but pleading conformity to the law means little when a society has shifted to a culture of shame and honor. It is possible to be innocent according to the law, but still bears great shame in the eyes of society. We see this very thing happening all around us. Now, we've always known that persecution against the church would bring in the possibility and the likelihood of falling afoul of the law, of being judged guilty for what God says is good and true. Jesus himself was innocent, right? But declared guilty. And for our sakes, he was declared guilty. And so he bore the shame and ignominy of the cross on our behalf. We need to be prepared adequately for the possibility and likelihood of having to bear great shame for what God says is good and true. So, let's talk then about the history of the revolution. As we discussed last week, this is not surprising given the secularization of Western societies, where we went from the modern age to the postmodern age, remember? And last week, our brother talked about the four horsemen of modernity. Anybody remember who those four horsemen were? Darwin. Darwin. Who else? Marx. Freud. Freud. And Nietzsche. All right? And that's true. There you are, the four horsemen of modernity. And those of you who have watched the film Pulp Fiction, you might recognize this icon. I never watched it. Uh, I think it's R-rated. But the icon is pretty famous. And these four horsemen are holding culture captive. They're holding Western culture and our history of the Christian influence hostage to the new school of thoughts that they introduced. Well, don't need to spend a lot of time on that, but Marx explicitly rejected the Christian worldview and the message of sin, redemption, eschatology, and more. He replaced every Christian doctrine with a Marxist one. Darwin introduced a worldview that was an alternative to every Christian truth claim. Redefining humanity and origins. The chief thrust of Darwinism has now grown into a denial of any special status for humanity. So the dignity and the image of God reflected in the first few chapters of Genesis and throughout all of God's redemptive history is eradicated. And so you have people today who say, save the whales. Save the baby dolphins more than save the child in the womb. You know, we are seen as just an accidental biological result of chance over millions and millions of years. We are no more important than the speck of dust that's flying around and might be captured by your filter in your HVAC unit at home. There's no elevation of anything. 
Nietzsche said there's no truth, only power. No good and evil. Christianity represented the chief opposition to his views. He said modernists lack the courage of their conviction and that all that was left in the worldview is power. He said that all claims to truth are disguised claims to power. So the church wants to dominate people. The church wants to control people. And that's the whole purpose. And then, of course, Freud authorized the assumption that all of our problems have been inflicted upon us. We are victims. And so as victims, we need to get out of that mentality. And it's interesting that since the public affirmation and acceptance of these views, that the rise of psychotropic drugs has gone through the roof. So reality is altered, and I'm going to alter my mind to accept this reality. And so now every demographic is being hit by what the Rolling Stones said was mother's little helper. You know? And it's rampant because the Christian view of reality as undergirded by God's word, his authoritative word to us, is being destroyed. Steve? Yes? Is America leading the way in this? I'm sorry, say it again? Is America leading the way? Is America leading the way in this is the question, and actually, no. Uh, these movements started in Europe and have gone into America. The trends that we're talking about uh, are trends that we as Americans in our culture are facing now, but have other cultures have already experienced, especially Western uh, Europe. Okay. So let's keep going. What are the contributing factors then? What are the contributing factors and symptoms of this revolution? Starting in the 19th century, European intellectuals pushed back against the creeds and the morals of the Christian church. Urbanization. People began moving from the countryside where they were known in smaller villages to societies where they could be anonymous and participate in activities where they were not responsible, they were not held accountable. In 1910, after centuries of sexually transmitted diseases, the first treatment of a sexually transmitted disease by pharmacological method was introduced. Again, made people more bold to be able to experiment and have sex outside of marriage. In 1930, the Church of England accepted birth control as normal. The church was involved in this as well, undermining God's purposes for man, sexuality, and relationships. In 1943, penicillin came along, which was a great boon, and again, was solving a lot of sexually transmitted diseases. And people became more bold in their uh, sexual experimentation. In 1950, the sex experts, Alfred Kinsey, who was a complete fraud and even engaged children as young as five months old in sexual experimentation with pedophiles, combined his work with Masters and Johnson, who were, again, totally immoral people, as they became the sex experts in the American culture, and it shaped the way of thinking. In 1956, uh, Pitram Sorokin, who is a professor of sociology at Harvard uh, University, coined the phrase sexual revolution to describe what was happening. In 1960s, there was a little pill that was introduced to society. And that pill was known as the pill. <laughs> and so contraceptives 
were widely available. And again, people could have sex as a leisure activity, not as part of the marital union. And again, these are just symptoms of what was happening. In 1965, Griswold versus Connecticut, it was ruled that married couples had a right to birth control. 1973, what became legal? Abortion. Abortion became legal. Again, eliminating the stigma of pregnancy from the sexual activity. 1980s, there was a radical drop in marriage and an increasing cohabitation. 2007, there were 14 uh, million people engaged in cohabitation. In 2016, it's 18 million, a 29% increase in nine years. In 1990s, university courses studying strange and aberrant sexual behavior became acceptable and a norm. 1990s, there was an exponential rise in prenuptial agreements. Again, all of this talking about the disintegration of the Christian biblical view of marriage and sexuality. More symptoms. 1990s, changes in laws restricting sexual behavior and criminalizing certain conduct. As a matter of fact, in 2003, the Supreme Court ruled in a case of Lawrence versus Texas that uh, criminal laws prohibiting consensual same-sex behavior were unconstitutional. And in 2014, again, a symptom of this, the U.S. Census Bureau's current population survey, 47.6% of women between age 15 and 44 have never had children. And that was up from 46.5% in 2012. That is the highest percentage of childless women since the Bureau began data mining in 1976. And then 2013, United States versus Windsor, the definition of marriage was overturned. Now, this is not the sexual revolution and what we're experiencing did not happen in a vacuum. What I just gave you was actually like a four-century quick panoramic view of what was encroaching upon us. We should not be surprised at where we are where we are. It's not unusual at all. And I know this is going to work. So, how do we respond? Well, we respond this way. Uh, Flannery O'Connor has this quote, push back against the age as hard as it pushes against you. Now, we're not going to engage in warfare using weapons of the flesh, but we will engage in a uh, rethinking of our response. So what is our response? First, we are going to uphold biblical truth about human sexuality and marriage. The confessing church is now a moral minority and is what the times demand. The church has no right to follow the secular siren call toward moral revisionism and politically correct positions on the issues of the day. We must speak as the church. That is, as a community of fallen, but redeemed sinners who stand under divine authority. The church's conviction must not emerge from the ashes of our fallen wisdom, but from God's commands, from God's word. The church must hold fast to the gospel it has been entrusted to preach. So, we should uphold these truths. And that includes affirming biblical roles and identities. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that? Practically speaking, how do you think we, as a culture, based upon God's word, how do we affirm biblical roles and identities 
to our friends, our neighbors, our relatives. Joel. Lead by example. Good. All right? What else? The question is, you know, not are we are we affirming people in the Bible, or are we affirming our position before God and uh, His design? And the answer is yes, we're affirming His design. So, the question is, how are we affirming that um, God designed us first to be uh, biologically male, biologically female? Second, um, how do we confirm that? That relationship is to be a covenant relationship under God and by His design. How do we affirm that men are to behave and act in their responsibilities before God in a certain way, and women have that same role? So how do we do that? Now, Joel started by saying, hey, do it by example. And we're not going to have superficial stereotypes, are we? All boys have to play with trucks, and all boys have to uh, like cars, and women like shopping and talking. We're not doing that. We're not going to be that guy. We are going to affirm, though, that there is a committed relationship by showing that in our marriage, having good, solid marriages, by not running away at the first sign of trouble, by seeking to be a community that encourages that. And secondly, we're also going to be looking at Encouraging a healthy biblical view of sex. It is not shameful. It is not disgusting. But it's not also, as we heard preached recently, going to be dragged down into the gutter and made, you know, to be an option of jokes. Yes, Jason. Yep, that wishy-washiness that Jason is talking about in the mainstream church. As a matter of fact, one of the things um, that has happened is that some of the mainstream or people who are visible, Brian McLaren is an example. Brian McLaren said in 2006 that we should have a moratorium talking about uh, homosexuality. We should put it on hold. And then all of a sudden in 2012, what do we see? We see Brian McLaren officiating at his son's same-sex wedding. You know, such things should never be. You know, so you're absolutely right. That moral, you know, wishy-washiness is ungodly. And, you know, we can uphold a godly morality for both single and married people. You know, there was a survey not too long ago that was done that explained how there were many people under the age of 18 who had never been to a marriage ceremony. When we have a marriage, bring the little kids. Let them see it. Let the little girls think, oh, when I get married, I want to wear this dress, and I want, I want to have these flowers. And I That's a good thing. Yes, Josh. Mm-hmm. Showing affection, opening doors, giving respect. 
Yeah. Excellent. That, those little things are very important. You know, Abraham was seen cavorting with his wife, wasn't he? Not a bad thing. Dave? If there is two parents. Yeah. But even there, you know, even single parents have the ability to demonstrate what it is to be a godly man or a godly woman and to encourage their children to have a biblical morality. So you're absolutely right. There are situations, you know, whether it's a single person who can affirm marriage and speak well of it, even if God has given them the ability to be a single individual or a single parent, whether it's a man or a woman, to live in a godly way and encourage and uphold a godly morality so that kids know, hey, shacking up together is not an option. And the church can uphold that, just like you were saying, Jason, by, hey, I understand, Sally, you're now living with George. How, how did that happen? Are you guys married? Not. Oh, hey, we need to talk about this, you know. What does the scripture say? Is this a God-honoring thing? You know, we need, to, we need to do that. We need to address this immorality within the church. And at Faith Bible, we will. Not out of a punitive or vengeful thing, but for the good of the individual, for God's glory, and for the testimony of the individual and the church. Even in a society that says this is okay. It's not just biological. God's comments about the spiritual nature of sexuality, our bodies as a temple, are plainly seen. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. I have it written there. I want you to encourage you to read that. Strengthening families. How do we strengthen families? You know, we have a great course that John, um, that John Beale is going to be teaching on raising children. We have, uh, you know, couples advances where we get together and talk about how do we strengthen our relationship, you know, Encouraging the culture on and engaging the culture on morality and marriage. <clears throat> you know, recent studies have debunked the claim that all that half of all marriages end in divorce. We should talk about the tragedies of cohabitation and how it's harmful, especially to women. And it's not a good thing. And engage the culture in a winsome, friendly, gospel-drenched way. Well. The elephant in the room. What about homosexuality and same-sex marriage? How did that happen? And again, just like the sexual revolution did not happen overnight, this did not happen overnight either. Historically, you had the Stonewall riots of 1969, where the homosexual activists just fought out against the police who raided a bar because there was unlawful and immoral behavior going on there. In 1973, because of pressure from homosexual activists, the American Psychiatric Association removed the labels against homosexuality. There was a zap tactic where they just showed up at meetings and just disrupted the meetings time after time again. And they put pressure on one specific person leading the American Psychiatric Association to remove the labels against homosexuality, homosexual behavior, and orientation. In 1981, the rapid flux of AIDS was through the country. Homosexuals were actually tainting the blood supply purposefully to gain attention to this 
disease. When Daniel was born, there had been uh, a tainting of blood, and they weren't testing for HIV. They weren't testing for the AIDS virus. And Kim lost a lot of blood during his birth. She did not get a transfusion, and for that I'm thankful. Do you remember Starskin Hutch? One of the actors, had a trans- his wife had a transfusion at that same time, and it was infected blood. And she contracted full-blown AIDS and died. But the people who had AIDS were seen as victims, and they purposefully presented themselves as victims. And so they got the emotional uh, support of the culture. 86, Supreme Court rules that Georgia was not violating constitutional laws by prosecuting homosexual behavior. That's 86, right? But the Supreme Court later on in 96 stated that no state law targeting those with same-sex orientation or behavior could be constitutional. 1998, DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, was passed into law, but it was soon thereafter overturned. Presidential elections in 2004, 11 states passed overwhelmingly, 75% in Kentucky, the Defense of Marriage Act, banning homosexual marriage. But that was all turned over. In 2012, there were four, only four states that had Defense of Marriage legislation. None of them passed. See, the tide is turning. In 2013, DOMA is officially overturned by the Supreme Court. Proposition 8 in California is overturned. In 2014, numerous polls indicate that a majority of Americans support legalization of same-sex marriage. And now, young people, and even young people within the church, are overwhelmingly supporting a new sexual ethic. Well, that's the historic cultural history. What does the scripture say, the history and source of this is. Joel. A little leaven, little leaven, okay. I'm thinking specifically about Romans chapter 1, right? Where there's the refusal to acknowledge God and his design. And as a result, God does what? He turns them over to a depraved mind to do what is right, to do what is wrong, excuse me. And those particular behaviors are mentioned. But It's not just those behaviors. If you look at Romans 1, verse 28 and 29 and 30, it says this, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. That's That's all of us, right? It's all of us. It's not just a particular demographic or sin. And so we, when we speak, are going to speak with with compassion and empathy. So how do we respond? Well, we start first by confirming God's incredible design in creation and his wisdom and his purposes that they're good. The affirmation of the goodness inherent with a, with a male being a male and female being female. It's not just a social construct. 
And we can start with our own children, our own relatives. God made you as a, as a boy. He gave you these particular traits. This is a good thing. He's preparing you to be a man. He's preparing you to be strong, not just to be a sheepdog and protect you know, the little lambs that he gives you, but also to be a wise and gentle leader, to be a wise warrior and someone who is going to treat people well and be an example. We also need to be very firm in compassionate truths. The passages that I put on your notes, those are the six primary passages that call out that homosexuality, homosexual behavior is wrong. And I put 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through uh, 11 at the last there because that verse says this, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So when we deal with people who have this particular emphasis or this particular behavior, we recognize that within ourselves, we are people who, by God's grace, have been redeemed. And we're not better than they are. We're not to look down our noses at them, but we're to extend grace like we do to anybody else. We can ask, is God anti-gay? No, he's not anti-gay. He's against all of us by nature as those living apart from him and and for ourselves. There's forgiveness, cleansing, and power to overcome any habitual thinking and sin. And the other thing that I want to recommend is that in our compassionate truth that we also recognize that we need to be honest about sanctification. The church can sometimes present a picture to people that if you leave any particular sin, that's it. You'll never do that again. You'll never be tempted to do that again. That's wrong. And it presents a false understanding of the world and how of our flesh, of Satan, and of the fact that God will indeed bring us through. But it may not be instant. It may not be, you know, total at first. It's a progressive sanctification. Yes, Lisa. Where Lisa is bringing up a very good point, and that is when we talk about a biblical view of manhood and womanhood, that we do need to address feminism. And so in a couple of weeks, we are going to be addressing radical feminism. Lisa is going to be teaching that for us. And, and Joel... Girl power, yes! And Joel is going to be sitting in the back cowering. So... <laughs> He's going to be the amen chorus. Amen. Preach it, sister. Go. (laughs) All right. Um, Well, listen. There's some practical things, and I I, I wanted to give these notes to you. What if somebody comes out to you? Well, you need to thank them for being open and trusting. 
You need to let them know you're not going to reject them. You need to listen to them and be kind. You may not agree with the practice of homosexuality, and I believe if you're a biblical Christian, you won't, and other non-binary sexual orientations, but that person is made in the image of God. They still bear the image of God. You're not going to have words of hatred or acts of violence. You're going to be kind and compassionate. Authentic love always speaks the truth, even when it's not easy. And so you may want to go over some of these things. Hey, I understand this is, you know, you know, listen to them first. And then gently probe, pray for them. That's our point number five there. Now, it's a little bit different if you say, well, a loved one came out to me. A son, a daughter, a grandchild, a niece, a nephew came out to me. What do I do? Well, first I would recommend that you seriously consider Luke 15 and the story of the prodigal son. How did the father react? He him. As far as you know, and as far as the scriptures tell us, we don't have him fighting, yelling, you know, disowning him. The boy went. And what did the father do? The next time you see the father, what is the father doing? He's looking. He's looking. And then he runs. I'm 61 years old. I'm not running again. But you need to consider that. What is God laying upon your heart now for you to do? You need to wait and trust God to work on your heart. You have to be careful of grief and anger and blame and bitterness. Ask yourself honest questions. Did I contribute to this? Was I not a good example? And you need to be willing to do that. You need to listen. Keep the conversation going. Never give up hope. Immerse yourself in God's word and the counsel of others. Don't hide. Don't retreat. Consider the boundaries of the relationship. Be willing to communicate them, seeking understanding on both sides. You know, the question of the partner in relationship. Is that partner going to be welcome in our home? Well, we're not going to get together under our roof, but we'll get together at a restaurant. You're welcome in our home, but you ain't sleeping together. By the way, this goes with cohabitation, male and female too, right? Yes, Jason. There, there, is, there is a tendency to have a repulsion of one type of sin over the other. And I th- think we do need to guard against that, but instead offer the hope. There are people at Faith Bible Church who have been involved in alternative lifestyles, and they are not, and they are married, and they've had children. And praise the Lord. You know, praise the Lord that that happens. There are also people who were thieves. There are also people who were adulterers. There are also people who are proud and are still wrestling with that. So, you know, we need to be cautious and biblical. Well, so a loved one comes out to you, all right? I got invited to a same-sex wedding. 
Oh my goodness, here's another one. What do we do here? Well, you could cut off the person and the child completely. I'm leaving that pregnant pause to indicate my not agreement with that position. You can embrace, welcome, and accept their choices, their lifestyle, and their relationship. If you have a pen with you, I want you to cross those first two off, all right? So I want to get out the pens, cross those two off right now. You can not attend, but stay connected. Yes. Or you can attend with grief. You don't need to participate. You participated in many of their activities in the past. You could do that. You need to prayerfully consider how to respond. Don't just respond out of a gut reaction immediately. Pray about it. Think, what would the Lord have me to do? All right, I'm at my job, and now I need to get sensitivity training. I need to understand that the lesbian, gay, gender, queer, bisexual, demisexual, transgender, transsexual, two-spirit, intersex, queer, questioning, asexual, allies, pansexual, and polyamorous, or LGBTTTIQQAAPP is okay. And you need to go get sensitivity training. What do you do? Well, that's a discussion that we don't have time for today, but... Uh, I will tell you this, that there have been at least two legal cases in the country where uh, people have been uh, castigated by their employer for not wanting to go and not going, and the courts so far have judged in favor of these individuals who were against the indoctrination. But you need to do it in a good way. So, like I said, if you have that issue... Let's talk about that. Um, And next, side issues. Well, I believe that... I believe that this is the same as race. This is a civil right. Don't don't go there. Just just don't go there. Doesn't God want faithful monogamous relationships and and fidelity? I mean, the Bible talks about violence in, in homosexual relations, right? No. Don't, don't go there. The plain reading of the text is, has nothing to do with that. Can't Christians just disagree on this? Yeah, we ain't going there. The scripture is plain. We're not going there. We're not compromising. Well, what do we do? What do we do? We need to see that God makes an incredible promise during difficult times, like the verse in Jeremiah 32, 27 there. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? And now we're going to take our hymnals and we're going to turn to hymn number 275. And we're going to sing How Firm a Foundation because this is a great song that emphasizes scriptural truths like Isaiah 1 verse 25. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. And the last one, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame that shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume, 
and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus shall lean for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. Let's stand. We're going to sing this song and trust in our Lord. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to who you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God, and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee stand upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand when through the deep waters I cosway shall lie my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply the flame shall not hurt thee I only design Thy trust to consume and my gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. It may seem that the whole world is against you. Remember, you are against God's word, against the world, and God's word is behind you. The spirit is behind you. You may go through these trials. You may have people come out to you. You may have people invite you to a same-sex wedding. A child, a relative may come and talk to you about their homosexuality, and it will be a trial. But God will strengthen you and give you wisdom through his word to honor him and to be an instrument of grace in that situation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, we do pray that we would have a sure foundation in you, in your word, through your son, that we would know how to respond to those that ask for the hope that we have and the reason for our belief. Be with us, cause us to honor you in all of these things, and we praise you in your son's name. Amen. Amen.